0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au
1: for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
2: And this is Melbourne community radio station 3CR. My name's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 o'clock this evening with... Tuesday Home Time. On the programme today, comment on the bombings in Sri Lanka with Dr. Brian Singaratna, veteran peace and human rights activist. Increasing controversy at the cost of the Australian War Memorial Extension. We're speaking with Dr. Sue Wareham, who's the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. A recording of a speech at the Melbourne. Unitarian Church recently by Australian missionary nun Sister Patricia Fox speaking about the dire situation in the Philippines. Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to me this morning from New York and his views on why the US has failed to oust President Maduro in Venezuela. And Louise Byrne and Nadine Rutter talk about efforts to have world West Papua included in the next Decolonisation Committee meeting. But of course, first up, Mr Kevin Healy.
3: A week, journalist, Listener, when Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, appeared to be bending over backwards to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory as the country generally, apart from the Canberra Press Gallery, which finds boredom and predictability, accusation and counter-accusation the stuff of hysterical excitement, as the rest of the country generally descends into autumnal election hibernation. Hibernation for most hypernation for the press gallery. It took but days of these weeks of the battle of ideas for the battle of ideas to reach the dizzy heights. My word, aren't we into coining clichés today? The dizzy heights of little Billy and caring business class party Big Supremo scuttle them all, Ash son, accusing each other of lying. Indeed, each telling us we can't believe a word the other is saying when we know we can't believe a word either is saying. Scuttle them knows there's no sense in not turning the massacre of more than 300 churchgoers by mindless terrorism into a political opportunity as he did his best Jacinta Ardern impersonation, visiting a Buddhist temple and attempting to express sincerity and empathy and caring, but given he couldn't wear a hijab, well not without looking like a bigger idiot than he is, he missed the opportunity to shave his head, don a robe and chant a few. Mantras, But as he, in all sincerity, declared his concern for Sri Lankan people, expressing continually in recent days his commitment to dear baby Jesus' compassion, love thy neighbor, it might have been an opportunity for us to ask, scuttle them, how come you send those Sri Lankans fleeing persecution back to the persecution they are fleeing, or locking them up for life on an idyllic holiday island? We can be sure it'd have a logical answer in all sincerity like the sincerity today from Lord Rupert of Wapping yesterday that Sri Lankan slaughter a terrorism that would have been P1 blanket coverage and several inside pages had it occurred in a white Anglo-Saxon or European country reduced to inside the book and I don't intend to make light of the tragic deaths and bravery Sunday in the treacherous waters off Port Campbell where no one in their right mind would attempt to swim or surf but that made Whopping sin P Ahead of the mass, mass deaths of non-whites Then today, after we discovered two true blue Aussie citizens had been killed Suddenly, all over P1 Easter massacre in Sri Lanka So cruel, and inside spread They'll never be forgotten Not that we're suggesting there's anything racist about Lord Rupert's reporting priorities mention scuttled them in a hijab would look like a bigger idiot than he is. Well, speaking of bigger idiots, Barnacle. This 80 or so million dollar water buyback from a Cayman Island tax dodger, uh, sorry, sorry, respectable company meeting its legal tax obligations, with the now Minister for Fossils as a director, with no tender process and apart from putting it all down to the socialists, But how come, Barnacle, you you were the minister? Because, like, where there's no water, it's like, you know, caused by the socialist commie evil union incompetence. And where there is, you know, like, water, it's thanks to the brilliant competence of the Hayseed and, you know, Sheepshit Party. Oh, right, right, I didn't know that. With no tender process, Barnacle's explanation is he had no idea of the price or who the vendor was when he signed off on the deal. Uh, uh, hang on, not sure that's, isn't that the equivalent to use the vernacular of signing a blank cheque with our money? Only Barnacle could think that's a reasonable explanation. Well, perhaps not only Barnacle, but Scuddle then dismissed the whole Fuhrer as history. Let's get on with the election. Other than joining Barnacle in putting the whole Murray-Darling disaster down to the socialists and declaring the socialists, are reduced to throwing mud. Which, given the state of the river system, he, he might have thought through a bit better, like Barnacle's blank check explanation. I'd like an explanation of why we have to buy back public water in the first place. We mentioned scuttle them's compassion for Sri Lankan, mostly Tamil, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, providing them with a permanent island holiday home in Nauru, Manus, or Sri Lanka itself. And also from that home of female equality, Saudi Arabia, two more young women fled the country two weeks ago, hoping to make it to True Blue Aussie. And the report I read said they had now moved to a country that has accepted them without naming the country but we can be sure of one thing we know which country it ain't Okay, we mightn't accept people fleeing persecution and repression, but, my goodness, we respect women as long as they stay put back home in homes, true blue brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, cream of true blue youth train killers bomb. As our train killers have this new policy, pilots should think twice before bombing bridges because that bridge may be the only feasible route for women to collect water and firewood. This led to a compassionate response from Bruce Ralph, real name, because no one's heard of him, Bruce, New South Wales, true blue Aussie, peacekeeper and peacemaker, Veterans Association Supremo, true lovers of peace, who accused the top brass who are making the buck stop with the pilot. This is going to make the pilot hesitate, afraid he might be charged with war crimes, and that puts his life in danger. The enemy will not be hesitating to shoot him down. Bruce strongly supported by a, quote, ex-soldier, Bernard Gaynor, wherever they dragged him up from, who made a lot of sense. It seems the politically correct agenda is yet to reach peak insanity inside defence. Pilots are now required to consider feminist theory before dropping bombs. Gender advisors are now deployed on operations. We need our defence force to train combat warriors, not social justice warriors. Good point. If women are hanging around where the bombs fall, it's their own bloody fault. Just to clarify the language, operations means going out to kill people in their country. And in case you need convincing, he must be elaborating, surely, I hear you say, promise they were direct quotes. The peacekeepers and peacemakers obviously believe peace must be accompanied by slaughter and destruction. Any wonder Paul Bruce feels agitated. But can I just throw one thought into the equation? The women and the pilots would all be safe if we didn't go around the world bombing and invading countries the US of the UN of the US of the world doesn't like. But, Bruce and Bernard know, that would be the antithesis of peace. If war is peace... Ukraine is enjoying years of peace and now has elected a comic actor as new president, with 70% of people voting to throw out the Supremo elected by the US of and its supporters to get rid of the bloke they effectively overthrew, declaring his election unfair because he won and supported evil Russia. And they needed the true democratic guidance of the bloke whose supporters waved swastikas. Well, now the voters have thrown him out. The U.S. obviously thought getting in there it had done its job. And the comic actor now finds himself on the non-fiction side of the camera doing what he did make believe. Uh, And which of his policies appealed to you most, we asked one voter. First, he wasn't the other bloke, and we knew from his telly role he was a good big supremo. Right, and what would you like him to do as first thing, we asked another voter. Uh... Tell us his policies. Yes, this bloke won 70% of the vote with a 100% no policy campaign. Unlike the exciting choices we are so enjoying. Easter. And as Notre Dame resembled the fires of hell, as Clive washed his hands of his responsibility to workers, as scuttled them and the minister for keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, washed their hands of any responsibility for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, as scuttled them and the gang who know there is no such thing as climate change, washed their hands of any responsibility for the changing climate that isn't changing, as Barnacle washes his hands of any responsibility for signing a blank check, if he can find any water to wash them with, as little Billy washes his hands of any responsibility for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, or for not stopping the Adani the Planet fossil mine, leaving it to the law... Or for stuffing up his lines, blaming it on the media for asking him difficult questions like, What's your policy? as the Sri Lankan government washes its hands of not passing on an alert that may have saved 300 plus lives, as caring employers wash their hands for any caring employer problems, which are all created by evil unions and irresponsible elements claiming class warfare, class envy, when there is no such thing as class struggle. And except in the eyes of the strugglers, when they all wash their hands of inequality and exploitation, knowing the fault lies with the unequal and exploited, it was spiritually uplifting to see them all getting into the spirit of the season of the dear baby Jesus. Perhaps it's appropriate that the week kicks off with Palm Sunday, meaning they can all palm off their responsibilities. Good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I remind people every week, it's 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits with Kevin and a a few friends.
4: My name is Ian Hamm and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just
0: like me and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au.
4: A 3CR supporter.
2: Last Sunday, blasts hit churches in Sri Lanka. Churches that were full of worshippers who gathered for Easter services, Soon after, police confirmed blast of three high end hotels in the capital the Cinnamon Grand, the Shangri La, and the Kingsbury. Followed hours later by a blast at a guest house and a house in Colombo. The death and injury toll from this co- coordinated attacks is substantial. This morning, I spoke with Australian Sinhalese human rights activist Dr. Brian Sinaratma to gauge his reaction to the bombings?
5: A couple. Number one, I don't think the uh, Sri Lankan law enforcement bodies are capable of looking into this, and uh, Commonwealth or international investigation is mandatory. I think one of the groups, the Transnational Government of Tamilinau has already sent a circular round saying that the Commonwealth will have to send an investigation team. And I think uh, that makes eminent sense. Just to remind you that Lashanta Vikramat the editor of one of the most widely read papers, was murdered five years ago, and they are still unable to find the culprit. And they can't find the culprit of a single murder. What possibility is there of uh, arresting the correct people? They have arrested people I know, but whether they have arrested the correct people is another matter. I initially thought that it was the extremist Buddhist monks of the Bodu Pala Sena, that is, Buddhist power force, but I don't think that that's so. It seems to be a Muslim group, but as I said, we cannot have any opinions until we have a proper investigation. Sri Lankan, government, police... Or armed forces are simply not capable of that now I got some very important uh, information in a call I put through to, to Colombo 87 detonators have been found in the Colombo fort the main capital area 87 detonators have been found a few days ago so there's a lot more to come secondly and this is extremely worrying The world does not know, because it has not been publicized, that from February 3rd to April 14th this year, that's in the last three months, there has been some sort of disruption against the Christian worship. Every single Sunday, on 11 successive Sundays, and no action has been taken. So that what we are seeing, is not just an isolated problem, it is the culmination of three months every Sunday of disruptions. I think some thirty seven complaints have been made to the police and not one single sorry, fifteen complaints have been filed about this and the police have done nothing. So if they are not going to act on three months Every single Sunday, they're not going to act. That's for sure.
2: Ryan, the Christian community in Sri Lanka is very small. Why would they be seen as a target or a threat?
5: Because I think Sri Lanka is, whether they want to call it or not, a Sinhalese Buddhist country. So if you're not Sinhalese and if you're not Buddhist, you are targeted. They're targeted, the Muslims, that's for sure, about... uh, uh, six months ago. They are targeting every, everybody who are not Buddhists and Sinhalese.
2: But doesn't that then go back to your original viewpoint that it wasn't Muslims who were doing this but it was the the right-wing Buddhists?
5: Yeah, the extremist Buddhists. However, I'm about the only person who had mentioned that but I mentioned it only because they have been extremely violent and I think the deputy head of that movement is in jail and it could be a retaliation for jailing him. But they have been anti-everything except Buddhists.
2: The bombings were in such a variety of places over a a huge area of, of land. It must have taken a lot of planning to do it.
5: Oh yeah. As I said, this thing has been going on for three months every Sunday. So it is not a sporadic attacked by some madmen. This is very well organized and conducted. And uh, of significance is that it's not only on the Colombo area, but also on the other side of the island, at the same time in Batikalo. Now, Batikalo is uh, right across the island. Now I hear that there are about eight uh, hotels that have been bombed
2: doesn't look good for the future of Sri Lanka, does it?
5: I think Sri Lanka will have to decide whether they want to survive in terms of things like tourism. Because if they can't get this under control, tourism is dead. I heard that uh, a couple of Australians have been injured too. But the Brits, the five British are dead and uh, England is up in arms. You see, being up in arms is one thing doing something about it is another. I think that Britain and the Commonwealth have a responsibility of telling Sri Lanka, I'm sorry, but we are sending a team to investigate this. If they don't do this, they are as responsible as the Sri Lankan government. I got distant relatives in Kalambo, uh, but I got only one close relative, and she is in England.
2: There were two Australians killed.
5: You see, trying to isolate the two Australians or the five British is not the issue. The issue is that massive explosions have occurred in some eight sites, different sites, and the Sri Lankan government has arrested people. But I think that those arrests have mainly been to keep the outside world quiet, that things are getting under control or that action is being taken. Uh, well, action is being taken. Whether it is a correct action or not is another matter. I, I very firmly believe that Sri Lanka is not capable of looking into this. They don't have the ability, uh, if not the willpower, uh, to get to the bottom uh, of this.
2: And I dare say, there is still a, there is also a danger that these me, these people will be tortured into confessing whether they did it or not. Oh
5: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I thank God that the uh, Tamil Tigers were wiped out because if they were not, I can assure you that the first lot to be blamed would have been the Tamil Tigers.
2: Yes, especially as it comes up at the 10th anniversary.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have been, uh, number one, they would have arrested a whole lot of Tamils and said, we got the culprits. The fact that they've done nothing would have uh, been of no importance At all. This detonator thing is serious because it's 87 detonators found in the heart of Colombo. And if uh, that's correct, and I think it is, well, there's a lot more to come. That's for sure.
2: Okay, Brian. Thanks for that. That's all right. Well, you can only hope that they have found them all. That's Dr. Brian Simaratna, who's a long time. Peace and human rights activist in Brisbane, born in Sri Lanka, been in Australia for over 60 years and concerned about what's happening in his homeland.
5: This is David
6: Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 835 AM Melbourne,
5: Australia.
0: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we
6: can do, and everything can change.
7: Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au.
2: In a submission to the Joint Standing Committee on the National, Capital and External Territories Inquiry into Canberra's national institutions, Sue Wareham, on behalf of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, called for major changes at the Australian War Memorial. I spoke to Sue last week and began with the beginnings of the war memorial. It was first conceived in 1916 when Charles Bean, Australia's official World War One historian, observed the 1916 battles in France. Is there a record of, of what he envisaged? It seems to me strange to be focusing on a a museum memorial in the midst of the carnage that was the war front in France during World War
1: I? Yes, the conditions are absolutely appalling and pretty unthinkable from our perspective a century on. But I think the notion of commemorating those who died at that time was probably a logical flow at the time, the thought that there needed to be some sincere commemoration on the part of the nation that these people had died in the belief that they were defending their country regardless of what we know about that that belief or belief about about that now. So I think the notion of a war memorial is an entirely appropriate one. But it's interesting to look at what happened after that and how the project evolved. And it it took off pretty soon after World War One and there were plans from the well from the late, um, even before the 1920s, but in the 1920s the plans t- uh, took a pace and Charles Bean was fairly central there. It's interesting to note one of the comments that he made, which has been recorded by historian Michael McKernan, but one of the comments that Charles Bean made about the proposed memorial that it, which is interesting in the light of the proposal now to expand the place, is that Charles Bean said should not be colossal in scale, but rather a gem of its kind. So, if we look now at, we really do have, we do have a gem in the War Memorial, features of it are quite superb, but the proposal that we have before us now for a huge expansion, mostly to put in more military hardware, you really do have to wonder whether this is, is it going against Charles Beans, what he envisaged as a, a commemoration, but not a grand colossal, even grandiose structure.
2: Are you aware of what there are in comparable countries to Australia? Do they spend the same amount of money on an ongoing basis for war memorials? I couldn't
1: comment on the uh, the buildings uh, as such, but certainly can comment on the way war commemoration is built up in the national narrative and certainly looking at the experience of the World War I commemoration in Australia Australia spent far more than any other country on earth on our World War I commemoration, and that includes even the countries where the numbers of war dead were vastly greater than they were in Australia. So our narrative around war commemoration is certainly a much more dominant part of our what we're told is our national story here uh, than it is in other countries. And perhaps that relates to the fact that in other countries the memories of what actually happens in war and the reality of it are much stronger than they are in Australia, except perhaps for the Aboriginal people who experienced the frontier wars. But in Australia we most of us have not known war on our own soil as people in other places have.
2: Are you aware of the current budget of Doctor Nelson's war memorial? yearly budget? Yes,
1: the proposed budget is $498 million so not far short of half a billion dollars, which really is pretty scandalous especially coming on top of hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on our World War One commemoration.
2: I'm thinking of what they get every year apart from that $500 million that's proposed, the upkeep.
1: I don't have that figure in front of me, Jan but certainly the Successive years, the War Memorial is treated very generously in our budgets, while our other national institutions and many other areas of national need, in- including overseas aid, which has uh, dwindled to pitiful levels. Our attention to promoting peace these things are, really get short changed in the budget, but the War Memorial is consistently treated very generous- generously and particularly compared to our other national institutions and in the most recent budget just a week or so ago the War Memorial got another, I think another dozen staff and the other national institutions got a bit but not to the not the same level of support that the War Memorial continues to receive
2: Yes, I'm thinking of Shrine of Remembrance here in Victoria and you try and compare that to what the War Memorial is it, it's not just a building, it's many buildings it's gardens, it's... All sorts of things, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And I think it's appropriate in the national capital to have significant attention to our war dead. But we have much, much more than significant attention now. It's grossly overdone. And overdone in a way which is tending even away from just commemoration and it's really delving into more into entertainment attracting tourists a number of people have commented that the war memorial is becoming more like a theme park and this is really disrespectful of those who those who died and those whom we send to war um, still today we should be commemorating their sacrifices but not letting the weapons companies have a have a free kit free-kick weapons companies names displayed in the War Memorial this is quite offensive and the proposed promotion of weaponry in the proposed expansion is really just plain wrong it's offensive and it shouldn't happen
2: is it known how much those weapons manufacturers are putting into the War Memorial
1: yes there are some figures in the War Memorial's annual reports although There have been some questions as to when the uh, Director, Brenda Nelson, reports in Senate Estimates. The annual reports and Dr Nelson's explanation don't don't completely match up in, in all the detail. But we do have some figures from the annual reports. And over the past... Well, from 2015 to 2018, so three financial years... It was about one, just over 1.2 million dollars. So, in terms of how much this means for the weapons companies, I mean, it's pocket money for them. It's tiny amounts, but the Walmerall says that they uh, couldn't couldn't do the expi- exhibitions that they do without this extra funding. So, a lot of people believe that the Walmart should be should be funded by the government. Uh, and only by the government. If we're going to send people to war, then we need to be able to afford to commemorate their sacrifices. And it's not appropriate to have those with a vested interest in us going to war and preparing for war to give them publicity at the War Memorial. It's totally inappropriate.
2: Is it known for how long private money's been put into the War Memorial?
1: I don't know for certain that answer. That would be in the annual annual reports one, one assumes uh, but I, I don't know the answer to that question Jan. I believe it's become more more prominent in recent times and certainly the current director Dr. Mel- Dr Nelson has made much more in the way of public statement about the fact that he actively seeks the weapons company money. It's not just something that he accepts when it when it comes it comes his way, he's actively seeking it out and he's certainly made much more of that than previous directors of the War Memorial.
2: And other business people have also put money in?
1: Yes, other, other businesses, yes, certainly there are other sponsors of the War Memorial and one could debate whether that's appropriate or not. In fact, right beside the Eternal Flame, which is probably the most if one wants to use the word sacred part of the war memorial, there's a, a plaque uh, with the name of the supplier of the gas, which is also um, inappropriate to have a corporate name um, beside the etern- eternal flame commemorating our war dead. So one, one could debate whether it's appropriate to have corporate money there at all, but I think what really is should be beyond debate is the fact that weapons companies should not be donating to the War Memorial because they, pure and simple, have a vested interest in Australia being at war and continuously preparing for war.
2: You mentioned the entertainment aspect of the War Memorial and school children are bussed in from most parts of Australia now to spend the day in Canberra and a lot of that time is spent at the War Memorial. What do they put on for children?
1: Well, that's a particularly troubling part of the War Memorial. There's a section in the memorial called the Discovery Zone, um, which is for children. And yes, a lot of Australian school children do there, uh, do, do go there on their trips to Canberra. It's really a play area. They can climb into, into a helicopter and pretend they're fighting in Vietnam. They can climb inside a pretend World War I trench and pretend they were fighting in the trenches minus all the horrific conditions that prevailed in the trenches of course they can pretend they are fighting in a Cold War era submarine, hunting Soviet submarines, so it's really really sanitising the whole thing and given that one of the War Memorial's purposes or functions is to educate Australians about Australia at war to have our children really indoctrinated uh, in this way, in, in some, uh, somehow even pretending that war is a game, that's just a plain and abrogation of, um, of our duty towards the proper education of these children. Discovery Zone is, uh, is, a, is a particular problem. There are some questions being asked uh, about the fact that there are certain places in Canberra, the War Memorial being one where schools really must take their children if they want to see, receive particular rebates to help with the cost of the travel. So there are questions about whether the War Memorial should be a mandatory visit because there are a lot of national institutions in Canberra, a lot of superb ones, and questions about, well, should the kids have to go to the War Memorial if they, if they and their teachers would rather spend their time in Canberra, in others of the institutions. So I think that's an important question to look at too.
2: Another important issue is that which historian Henry Reynolds has commented on and that's that our commemoration focuses on how they fought, not why they fought.
1: Yes, I think that sums up pretty much a lot of the concerns about the, particularly about the proposed extension of the war role, which is going to be pretty much about how Australians have have fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, recent wars, and presumably in, into the future. But yes, the question of why, what were the circumstances around these wars that Australia has gone to, and even looking at the question, were there any factors that might have prevented the wars if things had been done done differently so i think if the war moral is going to be true to its purpose of education then these things need to be looked at and it's not enough just to in fact it's not even perhaps the most important thing to look at how we fight what did the tanks look like what did the aircraft look like how many bombs could they drop and all that sort of thing that's of interest to some people and that's a that's a legitimate interest. Some people do like to study that. That's fine, but that is not the same as commemoration. And so, I think the military hardware part of the war, and war needs to be separated. And there is a different location in Canberra, out at Mitchell, where uh, which has been purpose-built built for military hardware. And I think the war memorial needs to make greater use of that and not look to display more machinery in its um, in any proposed expansion one of the other serious concerns about the proposed expansion is that there would be live feed from the Defense Department showing what our troops are doing right now now that's really you'd have to think of it as a bit of a slippery slope when does that become propaganda looking at what our troops are doing right now and is that going to stifle any dissent about what our troops are doing right now with people who question it. Are they going to be labelled unpatriotic or not supporting our troops? So really, really important questions um, about what should be displayed in the war memorial and keeping it as a commemorative space and not a place for actually promoting the means of
2: warfare. Another vital mission that you've already mentioned is the, that they haven't acknowledged or do not properly acknowledge the frontier wars.
1: Yes. This is an issue which is not going away and it shouldn't go away because it's so centrally important. It's central to it's key to understanding a lot about Australia now. It's key to our history. How did uh, how did white settlement Come about? What was it like? What was it like for the people who were already living here? Uh, All of those questions, and from a war commemoration point of view, what uh, what was the suffering like for the Aboriginal people? Where was the killing, and um, who did who did what, and all that sort of thing? Uh, And again, not not focusing on the detail of that as the main game, but focusing on the fact that it happened. And we need to recognise that there were, were massacres, that the first inhabitants suffered terribly under under white settlement. We need to recognise that as armed conflict and recognise it in our place of war commemoration.
2: Where do we stand now in opposition to that extra money going into the war memorial? There is a petition.
1: There was a petition. The petition rapidly gained signatures and it's been taken taken down now We got about we got over twelve hundred signatures within a very short space of time, which was um, in fact a lot better lot greater extent of feedback than the warmworm got in its um, feedback on on the pro- in its so called consultation on the proposed extension so that petition has been taken down now. Um, but the expansion is not a done deal. It needs to be approved by the Public Works Committee in Parliament, and that has not happened yet. And that will that will be a um, process that will that will happen. We don't know what will happen after the federal election, and so it's not a not a done deal yet. There are steps to steps to be passed yet, and given the strength of the opposition to this proposal, I don't see how any government could really go ahead with it in the name of the Australian people when there has been so much opposition to it expressed. Most recently from the Institute of Architects, who are absolutely horrified that part of the proposal is to knock down the award-winning Anzac Hall, which is only 17 years old. So the extent of opposition is pretty strong and the, the proposal is not a done deal yet.
2: Has the Labor Party made a statement?
1: The Labor Party has made a statement in support of the proposal, but I don't think we should take that as as absolutely binding and indicating that the proposal will go ahead because there there needs to be room for a re-examination of this, given the opposition... That's been expressed, and one of the things which the Labor Party could really look at is the facilities at Mitchell, another part of Canberra, which um, which are really purpose built to do what this new proposed expansion is is said to be all about, and at a, f- a fraction of the cost. So I think there there's certainly room for any any parliamentarian any party that comes to power, there's room to have a look at this again with fresh eyes and really work out what is the best way to commemorate our war dead. Thanks Sue. Thank you very much Jan, appreciate your interest in this.
2: And that of course is Dr Sue Wareham who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, a retired doctor in Canberra. If you'd like to find out more about the issues of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, have a look at their webpage and Facebook page and all the work that they, all the great work that they do all around Australia to alert people to what is happening. It's coming up to 4.42 and this is 3CR and you could be listening on your old analogue 3CR 8.55am or you could be listening live streaming which means that it just, it's live to air and that's on our webpage 3cr.org.au or you could look audio on demand which means that programs are there for you to look at for a whole week and once that week is up they go on to the next week so that's again at 3cr.org.au and the one to the big one is podcasting which means that you have programs sent to your computer and you can watch them just whenever you like but all those places you need to have a computer and 3cr.org.au
8: Join Self for Justice Launch and Pedal Out from 10am on Saturday 4th of May on St Kilda Beach, Bunurong Country Manus, here we come Bring your own flotation devices to pedal out or join a day's sail from St. Kilda to Sandringham. Wake up, wake up, 11 a.m. Original Nations Passport Ceremony. 12 p.m. Barbecue and yarn. 1 p.m. Music. 2 p.m. Lunch and pedal out. 3 to 4 p.m. More music? This event takes place on the stolen territory of Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty never seeded oh. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday 4th of May on St. Kilda Beach For more information go to saleforjustice.org sale number 4 justice.org Sale for Justice is a Tricia supporter Tell
4: the world we
6: love her Hi Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary, the 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Beraranga
3: Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations and even virtual reality. Now head to www.beraranga.world. That's g aworld and book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and
8: global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.
2: What follows is a talk at the Melbourne Unitarian Church last Sunday week by Sister Patricia Fox, Australian missionary nun, who left the Philippines just before she could be deported at the behest of the Philippines President Duterte. The title of her talk, All Out War Against Human Rights in the Philippines.
9: I think everybody knows or should know, except for the Australian government I have to say, there's always been human rights abuses in the Philippines that I've known of since Marcos times. But at present it is getting much, much worse and much more systematic. According to Karapatan, last, which is a human rights organisation, last December they had recorded 222 victims of political killings, 281 of frustrated extrajudicial killings, 111 tortures and over 500,000 people displaced because of military operations. And I have to say usually the operations under the guise of fighting the New People's Army, which is a liberation army there. But it's really to get rid of people, particularly tribal people, off the land so that they can carry out expansion of plantations, expansion of mining, dams, and things like that. So, And that's not counting uncounted estimates of how many have been killed in this drug war. Some people say it's as many as 30,000. It's very hard to get the exact estimates because... When I went and spoke to some of the victims' families and the horrific stories about what happened, often when they get... Like, the person's been shot in the head at close distance, whether they're a drug or not, because the police have a quota. Often when they come out of the funeral parlour, which are often known by the police, the death certificate says, died from pneumonia, died from heart attack. And I suppose you do have a heart attack if you're shot in the head. but So, I mean, actual... Statistics are, are difficult to come by but inf- it's just a total killing machine that's operating at present in the Philippines and those figures from Karapatan have increased amazingly, horrifically since that time and I was just counting uh, Datu, who's one of the Datu Kailo, who was one of the Lumad leaders, an indigenous leader in Mindanao when I went down to Mindanao on the fact finding which got me into trouble he is one of the leaders who was helping organise his people to defend their land against mining, to set up schools for the indigenous children, which a group that I had been involved in, the Royal Missionary, started up, and to get justice for the people. And, and he was killed the other day. And we had, after I'd been arrested and charged you know, with, well, deportation cases and cancellation of visa cases, we brought people, a few of the people that I'd spoken to in Mindanao to Manila because I was invited by a lot of media and groups And he was one of the ones that came around with me. And he was killed, I'm not sure of the details yet, but it seems like some military operation. Just recently, 14 farmers were killed in Negros. The the police military just went in, kicked down doors at 2am, 3am in the morning, separated the families, killed the men, killed the women. all who happened to be leaders, of legal organisations, whether they're pharma, whether they've got these progressive political groups, just systematic shooting close range, and the police are claiming they fought back. You don't shoot someone at close range, and the fact-finding has discovered that they were actually dragged, either the families were taken out or the people were dragged out, and it's bullets to the head, usually. This was just in March 30, 50 arrested, and this is happening in Negros, where there is a focus at present. And it's the third massacre in Negros in just a few months. In October, there were six people killed. Farmers again, who were agricultural workers. And the, the sugar had been harvested. And they had arranged that they could go on and plant some food crops, which they did. They're resting in the night. And paramilitary groups opened fire on them and burn them. So six people died there. There was another one again in about February where another four people were killed. So this is going on. And part of it is they are operating on what's called a counterinsurgency plan of the US, which is a whole nation approach. So everything's geared to so-called national security. And so under that they have this Oplang Kapayapan, which means it's a military operation for peace, supposedly but it's systematically targeting any groups who would put up opposition to the so-called development plans. And that's what's happening in Negros. There's a couple of plans. this a plan Suaron, which was declared in December. And also there's a a synchronised management, great long thing for the police. So it's a joint thing of the military and police in Negros basically systematically go through and target legal organisations because I was reading an article, and evidently Suarron was something, and I'm not um, really a Lord of the Rings fan, but evidently Swaron is a, a lieutenant of some Morgoth or something who's an evil, despicable king. And I'm thinking, this is right, you know, because that suits Duterte fine, and what's happening is despicable and evil. Of course, we have Mind- and while that's going on in Negros, Mindanao is still under martial law, and it's been extended until... December 2019, and there's absolutely no legal basis for extending it, but Duterte controls the Congress, he controls the Supreme Court, and he got rid of a Supreme Court justice that had an independent mind. So the Supreme Court said it was valid, and there's really no justification, and that's why I went to Mindanao in the first place when I was there, because they were trying to say that Mindanao is a haven now, under martial law and we were getting horrific stories and I interviewed people who had been illegally arrested people who had been killed um, extrajudicial killings I went to visit political prisoners interviewed indigenous people who had been forced off their lands and it wasn't true and what I also discovered where I got into real trouble was because Coca-Cola was exploiting its workers and they held a picket. It was broken up. They were arrested illegally. They asked me to say something, and I happened to say, which is in their constitution, that workers have a right to strike. They have a right to a decent wage. They have a right to security of tenure. But that's anti-government and subversive, according to the the regime over there. So that was what started all my saga (laughs) but it it really has got worse with this and now when there was I think it was APEC in November in 2017 I think it was before that there had been peace talks with the National Democratic Front and they had come to a stage where they were about to sign an agreement on the basic cause of unrest there, poverty, which was agrarian reform and the rights of workers and the rights of indigenous peoples They had agreed on a draft. Now, after Trump and Duterte spoke in November, all of a sudden, in January, February, next month, peace talks are called off. There's an executive order proclaimed listing 600 individuals and different groups as communists, NPA, rebel fronts and terrorists. And that... Red tagging has now become systematic and there's actually now a task force set up specifically to bait, red bait this and it's been going around Europe to funding agencies and the targets are Karapatan, Independent Human Rights Group and I mean I admire those people so much because many of their workers have been killed, they're always threatened they see the most horrific things and they go into the most dangerous of situations to document what's happening, to provide support services for victims. Now, they are being vilified abroad, especially with funding agencies. The rural missionaries that I belong to have been going since 1969. We have always been supporting livelihood projects or agricultural projects, but also through advocacy, the rights of workers, well, agricultural workers, farmers, indigenous peoples. We were significant in setting up a, uh, a whole lot of uh, indigenous schools in Mindanao, Lumad schools, which have been recognized by the Department of Education, but are now also being targeted. Been over 50 of them closed, I think. Many are being occupied by military. A couple of the teachers that I know, one of them was the director, had his throat slashed by the military in front of the children. Two of the, the teachers have been arrested. And these children are marvellous. I mean, they are, there's many in Manila at present, and they are determined, continue their education, and they are determined, and they're becoming more and more confident in speaking out and letting people know what's happening to them and what's happening to their indigenous lands, their ancestral lands. There's a special group set up, IALAC, just to make up false charges against prominent people who are speaking out. And so we have a number of the peace advocates now jailed under false charges. We have other people charged under false charges. One peace advocate was killed not so long ago, Randy Malaya. He was going back from Manila from a talk. In the bus overnight, asleep, people got on the bus at the, 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 um, the stopover and shot him. The, and the thing is that it's not... Then the people who defend victims are also being targeted. Like, his lawyer and his wife, who claimed his possessions, which had nothing to do with that shooting, are charged with obstruction of justice. This is whole harassment that's going on to even those who would dare defend the victims. There's another thing like also the law is being manipulated. What used to be the Human Security Act is now becoming the Prevention of Terrorism Act. And the definition of terrorism is so broad and it includes suspicion of creating terror. And terror can mean threats to anything that they declare a national industry. Now, the sugar workers sue which is a group of agricultural workers who are quite organised and quite strong and actually won the case for for their wages in the Department of Labour. But the company didn't honour the decision. Now, they were picketing. The military have come in and broken up that. And when the, the workers said, you know, but we have the rights, we have the decision, they said, we're in charge, it's martial law. So... And now that sumifru was declared an essential industry. This is bananas. So under this Terrorism Act, anybody who protests, anybody who insists on their rights, anybody who's even thought to be planning like a, a rally, a picket, a demonstration, can be arrested and held for 30 days with no charges. You know, so even, even, so, you know, like it's the law that's also being used now. They're trying to change the constitution, which would basically install what's going on now. I think it's got an 11 year transition period, which Duterte or his daughter, who seems to be manipulating, can stay in power. In the regions where they're saying there'll be a federal system, it's warlords operating most of the regions, you know, it's families who have been there for years. It's just really legalising what is warlordism in the different regions, but it also is going to take out, and you know, I was here for that Charter of Human Rights a few weeks ago, wasn't it? They have a Bill of Human Rights in the Constitution, which is totally ignored, so you do need to watch that the structures, the the judicial, the legislative, don't do things to get around this human rights thing. But part of the Constitution is to take all those out. And then other protections, like at least it has to be 60% most businesses Filipino-owned, they're going to add, unless otherwise declared, something like that, which means that the Congress or the, can change the Constitution just by saying we don't want it that way, which, you know, which is totally useless. What's a Constitution that you can change with a Congress that's totally under a dictator? And we know his attitude to international bodies, to the, to the International Criminal Court, has been highly difficult to get a case with the drugs because There's been one conviction with this young 17-year-old Kian and the Barangay captain said because the police didn't coordinate with her, so she didn't turn off the CCTV cameras. So normally there's no evidence. There's no CCTV evidence. In that case, because they didn't coordinate, they had CCTV evidence to show that this young fellow did not fight back, did not have a weapon. He was dragged away from playing... Uh, basketball or something with his friends uh, I mean where he was taken it's just little alleyways people in the little house overlooking the spot could hear him say but I've got an exam tomorrow and then he was shot he was one well, now they have taken one to the International Criminal Court but what does Duterte do? he pulls out of it the- the International Criminal Court. Most of the UN people who've said anything about him, like the ones on human rights, the ones on judicial, because there's been a lot of judges and uh, lawyers killed and things. He's sworn at them. he threatened to burn down the UN. You know, all these sorts of things. But the positive thing is the people are fighting back. The people are becoming stronger. You know, the organised people, they will not be put down. No matter what you do, you cannot kill the spirit of the people and you cannot kill their desire for justice. And so they are getting stronger, they're coming together, they're organising. In September last year, there was an International People's Tribunal held against Trump and Duterte and they were found guilty of crimes against humanity. So people gave evidence then of of, um, what was happening. One of the disappointing things is the Australian government. Like we are training troops over there and we're training them in urban warfare and exactly what happened in Negros, you know, where they break down doors, they go house to house, this is going on and we are training them there and they're boasting that they've trained over 7,000. We are bringing people here and one of the people we had here He's called The Butcher over there. Fortunately, he's been convicted, which was amazing. Everywhere he went, there was massive human rights abuses, killings, abductions. And they say, but, you know, we're teaching them about human rights. How do you teach a killing machine under a killer about human rights? And the thing was, this is Operation Augury, and all of a sudden it disappeared from the budget. You cannot find how much they're spending over there in support of police and military operations. And it increased with Marawi, which is a whole other story about whether the bombing of Marawi in southern Mindanao, they needed an excuse for martial law. And the Muslims, the Moros there became the excuse. And Australia came in helping there. The new ambassador, Stephen Robinson, has just made an absolutely... I don't know how to describe it in nice words, but anyway... (laughs) has said, people told him that Duterte is very sincere and he's met him now and he knows how sincere he is and how sincere he is about Mindanao and I'm thinking the only thing I can think about Duterte is he's sincere in continuing the killings, he's sincere in continuing the human rights abuses. So, I mean, that's been the Australian government's response and when we speak to them they say, oh, well, if we pull out the military, we'll have no leverage. What sort of leverage do you have in that sort of situation? So, so I'm not pleased with our Australian government's response, to say the least. And I think when a person has come out and said he doesn't believe in human rights, he's going to kill as many people as he can and throw them in the Manila Bay, and we are supporting a regime like that.
2: And that's Patricia Fox, sister Patricia Fox, who worked in the Philippines for nearly 30 years until Duterte got hold of her, arrested her, threatened with deportation, threatened with whatever, whatever. But she got out just before he could deport, deport her. She wants to go back, but I doubt whether, or certainly not while he's there, that she'll be able to go back. But just continue her work for the Filipino people here in Australia. Sister Patricia Fox.
0: Three minutes past five. Dum da 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 dum da 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 bum 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 bum. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to. Fill in the dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to yes. Fill in the. PDF. And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
2: Speaking now with Professor Emeritus James Petras in New York about his recent essay, Why Venezuela Has Not Been Defeated. James, there's three parts to this essay, can we go through them one at a time? First, what you describe as their multi-sided means and methods adopted by Washington to overthrow the Venezuelan government and replace it with a client regime.
6: Well, it's a long string of uh, events. They uh, began first to organize a a campaign to intimidate the government back uh, at the beginning of uh, President Chavez's election. They had visits from the State Department telling him uh, that he should join the bandwagon for the uh, uh, war against terror. And uh, Chavez answered, you don't fight terrorism with terrorism. And uh, following that, the U.S. met with the business elite and some corrupt trade union officials and uh, backed a coup led by a dissident sector of the military. And as a consequence of that, the, uh, over a million people, mostly poor people from the, uh, the hills, came down, and the uh, dominant section of the military remained loyal to uh, President uh, Chavez. Uh, that radicalized Chavez's thinking toward nationalizing some of the essential uh, components of the economy, Subsequent to that, that was in uh, April of 2002. By December, the uh, oil executives of the state enterprise, they organized a uh, lockout, and that carried into uh, January of 2003, and that was defeated. Subsequent to that, the uh, government was able to fire couple thousand of the employees and executives of the oil company. Washington then uh, hardened its position on Venezuela, and uh, at one point they uh, tried to put a a referendum to defeat Chavez. That that failed, and they ran a couple more elections, and that, that failed. They were defeated again and again. And meantime, uh, President Chavez was implementing a very vast uh, social agenda, building uh, schools and uh, over 2 million housing for the poor, along with increasing wages, salaries, and other uh, social benefits. At what point, uh, Washington was on the run because the oil industry was booming. Prices were up in commodity, reaching over $100 uh, a a barrel. And then uh, uh, Chavez ran a referendum to turn uh, Venezuela into a a socialist government. Uh, He lost by 1%, and he acknowledged the defeat. He didn't challenge it, and this uh, puts the lie to the U.S. uh, stories that uh, the Venezuelans opposed the free elections. And finally, uh, the oil boom ended, and Washington made a bid for power again, this time uh, combining uh, street demonstrations and violence and uh, tried to force uh, the government out of power. These were defeated, and uh, when Chavez died, Maduro, uh, a bus driver, ran for office on the Chavista ticket and won. And uh, that makes a lie to the story that uh, Maduro was elected uh, some kind of uh, illegal activity. So you have a whole series of coups, referendums, lockouts, plots to uh, induce the military to uh, uh, betray the Constitution.
2: What's the connection or what has been the connection over the years of the opposition leaders to the U.S.? Have they been to the U.S.? Have they been trained there? Have they been mentored by the U.S.?
6: Well, you've had uh, NGOs, especially young uh, students uh, that went for a, uh, training programs in the U.S. and came back inspired to overthrow the government. And uh, the U.S. has been pouring money in through the uh, met the uh, national endowment for democracy and other fronts to subvert the country to uh, swing the uh, opposition into a more violent confrontational approach Washington also benefited from the fact that the uh, political configurations in Latin America changed whereas in Argentina, Brazil, you had the Workers' Party you had uh, the Kirchner government Uh, and others that uh, aligned with Chavez on establishing an independent Latin American association. With the changes and the uh, conspiracies in Washington to overthrow the uh, LULA uh, Workers' Party and impeach them or force them out, Maduro was isolated in Latin America, no longer had the, uh, the Pink Revolution, as it was called, and uh, the Pink Tide. Therefore, the U.S. was able to uh, line up the uh, Colombians who were uh, in the process of uh, imposing a right-wing government in uh, Brazil, the Bolsonaro, the fascist or quasi-fascist government there. So uh, what we have then is uh, Latin America becoming a less favorable Climate and Washington able to begin uh, plotting a uh, Latin American bloc that hopefully they could uh, induce to join a U.S.-led invasion. That failed. The uh, governments in Latin America were not willing to uh, risk popular uh, opposition, and so they uh, supported the sanctions against Venezuela but were not up to... uh, engaging in a uh, overthrow. So sanctions were applied and enforced. Resources that uh, Venezuela had invested in its refineries were seized. Holdings of uh, Venezuela's banks were gold, over $10 billion in gold was stolen from Venezuela. This is the uh, campaign. It runs from coups to sanctions. The seizures of resources, illegitimate attempts to uh, appoint the government on the say of, of President Trump, Guaido, the uh, so-called self-appointed, pro- 23% in the provincial town. That was his uh, claim to fame. He's uh, utterly uh, rejected in Venezuela, even as among people that are not pro. Maduro, they don't see him as a, uh, as a legitimate figure and a legitimate uh, uh, representative.
2: Well, despite all you've said, all the trials that they've gone through, the government is still there. What have they done to make sure that the people still supported them?
6: Well, they're doing their best. There's been shortages, and but they still have a publicly owned uh, supermarkets where they uh, provide subsidized food are still living in their homes that they receive from the government they're still attending the uh, clinics and hospitals Washington's boycott has been aimed at uh, undermining the people it's not undermining the government so they're trying to starve the Venezuelans out the Venezuelans are developing new trading partners Uh, with uh, overseas Russia, China, India, Turkey, Iran. So there's a realignment of their uh, trading partners and uh, attempts to uh, rearm their population through a million member militias. And this is one of the things that the U.S. has unsuccessfully undermined the uh, morale and loyalty of the military, and that's a crucial factor here.
2: But also, surely a crucial factor is the economy and oil now. What's the story?
6: The American um, multinationals have withdrawn from Venezuela, and the government is in control of the oil industry. What they have lost is the refineries they had in the United States. Yes. Yes. Uh, And uh, the Russians are signing up to uh, explore and deepen the uh, production. There's been a big fall-off in the production of the oil industry in Venezuela, partly because of the sabotage and sanctions, partly because the government has invested so much of their income in consumer goods and uh, maintaining living standards that it is uh, underproducing. And... This is a challenge to the government to realign their uh, priorities toward increasing productivity and diversifying their trading partners and diversifying their economy, especially in food production and their agricultural and and industrial sector. But in the meantime, the biggest problem in Venezuela is its monetary policy, and it hasn't tackled the issue of... uh, hyperinflation, which is uh, having a negative effect on all aspects of the economy.
2: How should they be tackling it?
6: I think they should be investing and and bringing in uh, experts, especially because of the uh, blackouts. The the opposition has been uh, shattering their uh, electrical and power and light system. Uh, did it for four four, uh, days, and I think the there's ways of combating that but the uh Venezuelan authorities have been fiddling with uh, rather inefficient and ineffective management and i think the chinese have offered to offer uh, have offered to provide uh, technical expertise and i think the uh, Venezuelan government has to realize that this is a big battle this is a global struggle It's not just the oil industries, it's the symbolism of Venezuela standing up to uh, uh, Trump and the aggression. And uh, I think they have to intensify their ties with Russia, China and other countries that can provide some of the technical expertise which they've lacked.
2: Is Guaido finished?
6: Guaido has uh, discredited himself. He kept calling that this was a humanitarian shipment that would cross the border, and uh, that failed. His attempt to arouse uh, major demonstrations have been counted by the Venezuelan government. There uh, still millions of people that support the uh, Chavista heritage. Now, there's one factor here that is very important, and that is the people realize they have gotten a lot from the uh, Chavistas, and any return to power by the right wing would result in a bloodbath, and they would lose everything. And Guaido has not been able to counter that. He's asked the military to desert and uh, offer them uh, uh, amnesty, etc., but nobody believes him, no one trusts him. He has no reputation. He hasn't done anything except uh, mouth opposition, so he's pretty discredited.
2: I suppose the people only have to look at what's happening in Brazil to see what could be the fate for them if um, their government fails.
6: Right, and uh, people are aware of that. People are weighing their options, of course, and they see they have gained more and... and, uh, and fear the worst if the government is replaced. Now, let's not forget, prior to uh, Chavez, there was a, uh, a tremendous uprising in uh, 1989, and the thousands of Venezuelan poor people rioted and were slaughtered. So there's a, a heritage of a, a legacy of the right wing being brutal. Uh, there's a despising of the, the, what they call the deplorables and the poor people, people mostly of color. These uh, animosities uh, go beyond simply economic issues. They're cultural issues, they're social issues, they're racial issues. And uh, this has uh, built the barrier between the majority of Venezuelans, especially low-income people, and the upper class and the middle class, which has essentially uh, looked at the other other Venezuelans as uh, their enemies.
2: Finally, James, can you talk for a couple of minutes about Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning?
6: Julian is a great hero. Uh, He has uh, played a major role in uh, disclosing what the U.S. wars in the Middle East have involved. Uh, thousands of uh, millions of civilians displaced, uh, injured, uh, murdered, uh, and he uh, provided the documents that disprove U.S. claims that this is a war against a uh, dictatorship. It's a war against Syrian independence, Syrian uh, attempt to uh, uh, transform the country in a more democratic direction. And Assange has revealed a lot of material that the uh, media here in the United States has denied or fabricated, and that's uh, played a big role in uh, in turning uh, large numbers of people in the United States and overseas against the U.S. and uh, weakened their capacity to intervene and carry on wars. And uh, I think in that sense he's been a a major factor in uh, the defeat of the U.S. and its capacity to uh, intervene. And as a result of that, he was enemy number one. Uh, He wasn't carrying a gun, he was carrying a pen, and he was telling the truth about the nature of the wars that the U.S. was carrying on. And uh, I think that it really made a big impact on uh, the war And it reflected in a way the fact that many people in the military and in the government uh, had turned against the government and were handing out these uh, documents uh, to uh, Wilkie Leakes and uh, and Julian Assange's team. These uh, leaks, uh, so to speak, uh, which were published, had three impacts. One, they they, uh, discredited the media. Secondly, it It undermined the government's authority, and thirdly, it created an ambience of other people, uh, other writers, other journalists, uh, carrying on the tasks of investigative journalism.
2: And the future for Chelsea Manning?
6: They re-arrested her, and uh, she's in solitary confinement, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the support of her Her situation is not what it should be and uh, she's suffering terribly from uh, isolation, uh, health problems and uh, the government is intent on keeping her locked up
2: Not a good note to finish on
6: No, unfortunately but uh, we have to face the realities if the, the Brits who are biggest hypocrites in the world extradite Assigned to the United States, you can expect the U.S. to lock them up for telling the truth.
2: Thank you, James.
6: You're welcome, Jan.
2: And that's Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus. He was speaking to me this morning from New York. And it's 22 minutes past 5 o'clock. Just on, 22 minutes past 5 o'clock. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since
4: 1976.
7: Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3
2: The issue we're discussing next is support for a resolution prepared by the United Liberation Movement for West Papua to list West Papua with the UN Decolonisation Committee. And I'm speaking with activists for a free West Papua, Louise Byrne and Nadine Rutter. First to you, Louise. What is the status of this committee? It's been there since 1961. How does it operate?
4: Well, it was set up during the great decolonisation era, which is after World War II. World War II seemed to release all this energy amongst colonies, and they rose up against their colonial powers. So the 60s was a great, and the 50s was a great period where the colonies who I'm sure had been wanting independence for a long time, actually got the energy and the space to fight the colonising power, whether it be England, France or, or um, the, any of the others. And so there had to be a kind of a mediating Committee, because the choice for the colonisers was to say, okay, off you go, which you can't do, because it's a whole transitional period. And the decolonisation committee was that to sort of oversee the transition. It was probably acting in its most recent form out in Kanaki um, with the referendum. So that's its job to oversee the transition from colonies to independence. So it's part of the UN process. West Papua is not on the decolonisation list. It should be um, because it had a 12-year period as a non-self-governing territory. And the only choice, really, when you become a non-self-governing territory where your colonial power is operating under Article 73 obligations, which is a reporting mechanism every year to the UN, your choice then is to become independent or stay with your colonial power in some form or another or end up as in association with another state. So the decolonisation committee is part of that transitional period.
2: What happens if the coloniser doesn't agree?
4: How has it worked out? To tell you the truth, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure that is going. That battle is sitting right in front of West Papua at the moment, and we will find out how far it can be pushed, because. What's happening with West Papua is unprecedented within the Decolonisation Committee. Just as an example of how um, nervous that committee is about West Papua, last year the West Papuan Independence Movement took uh, boxes of petitions up to the UN Decolonisation Chair. His name is Rafael Ramirez, a fairly shonky sort of an individual from Venezuela, but um, he used to be the Minister for Energy down there. There is a photo on the internet of him poring over the list of names. because This is a, a book of signatures with 1.8 million signatures. The photo is beautiful, but... The West Papuans were forced to take it down after he recanted the next day and said, I never received this petition and West Papua is not on the decolonisation list.
2: Who lent on him?
4: Oh, well, Indonesia, of course. Yeah, But that's why it was so quick and so fast and, and he was absolutely adamant the next day. So the West Papuans had to pull down... This photo they'd put up, and I've seen one since and I just forgot to click it. It was very late at night and I forgot to click it and save it, but I'll find it. Not that it really makes any difference, you know. It's not as though he was receiving it as head of the committee. He somehow just said, OK, come up to the office.
2: Well, we need to go back to the 60s, don't we, to work out why West Papua wants to be on that committee, wants it to be decided. What was happening in the 1960s in West Papua?
4: Can I go back to the 40s? Just because that's where the differentiation with Indonesia really came about, because the Americans bombed the north coast of West Papua very fast, very quickly, very thoroughly in 1944 and quickly shot in Dutch administrators. And the Americans, of course, were all into self-determination, if you remember correctly, in the 1940s, you know. Maybe not physically, but the war people were, like MacArthur. Okay. And he was kind of in charge of things, however much the political people thought they were. He was in charge. And so the Dutch administrators were flown back in and it just happened that the Dutch administrator, two of the main ones, were the two who'd stayed there in West Papua during the war. Uh, refused to surrender to the Japanese and led commando troops and intelligence troops of Papuans. They weren't like the old Dutch administrators who were a bit pompous and arrogant and, you know, racist. These were guys who'd lived with the Papuans during the war. And so they very quickly... And they were very intelligent too. They were Indonesian, Javanese, Dutch heritage. So born in Java and uh, understood self-determination. One had a PhD in literature. The other was well-versed in, in administration. So they quickly set up institutions gearing towards independence. They knew the Papuans would have to be independent. So, uh, you know, three big schools, an army, uh, a school of public service, other schools were set up in 1944. While Java and Holland, if you must say, was still occupied by the Nazis and by the Japan. So West Papua had a, a real jump up with very supportive people and all the American infrastructure that was left behind on their self-determination stuff. So then we move into the 50s, bearing in mind that Indonesia became independent in 1949 and the West Papuans were not part of it. They were registered as a um, non-self-governing territory. So that's another mechanism, UN mechanism, where you've got reporting facilities. You've got a whole lot of things you can call on, the World Health Organization, all this kind of stuff that comes being part of a UN self-governing territory. And so they went through the whole 50s really developing that. It was like West Papua and Indonesia were just totally different countries. Um, So there was great expectations. Oh, yes, totally. But by the Dutch and by the Papuans, and by Australians. Australians were very supportive because they didn't want uneven development across that border in the middle of PNG. So the Australians were right behind this as well, signing secret agreements. They were incredibly aware of Indonesia, so their agreements with the Dutch were signed secret. So this went on throughout the 50s to the point where uh, a parliament was set up. uh, Launched in 1961, the President of our Senate went Alistair McMullen or someone with a big kind of legal week I mean it was huge kind of stuff so that was in 1960 in April 1961 and that was just the peak body of regional councils all set up with the training of democracy in mind recalling that Papuan's primarily tribal so that was 61 and then that council which even had a woman had a woman council in councillor in nineteen sixty one. Went on in the same path. And six months later the attributes of state were um, announced and done, like, you know, flags and oaths and whatever else. There was a whole lot of stuff. And that was what Indonesia by then had woken up and they declared war on the Dutch puppet state in December sixty one. Yeah. And then? They declared war, Sukarno declared war, and backed it up. In 1961, Indonesia was the most powerful military force outside China in Southeast Asia. Massive Russian stuff. Even 300 Russian intelligence agents in Jakarta in 1961. But also America was supporting as well, militarily plus diplomatically. So they were playing their usual double game. The Russians were a bit more frank and just said, "You know, you can have whatever you want, basically." Well, they had their eye on the resources, didn't they? The Americans. That's a hard one to call in 1961. I thought there they are people ne- who say yes. Obviously, Freeport was found in 1936. The guy who found it lives in Melbourne, up in the hills, and will never talk. But he kind of hid all his information under a rock, and so there were people going in and out looking for this rock. <laughs> But didn't the Rockefellers know what was going
2: on? They they wanted that resource. Isn't that the story?
4: I'm not arguing the story. I'm just arguing the time. I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure in 1961 whether the bogey was communism or the pull factor was gold. 61 is kind of a hard one to call on that one.
2: Yeah. Do we go straight to 1969 or was there something else happening in that period?
4: 1969 is... The uh, referendum, which is the final step in the agreement signed in 1962, it's called the New York Agreement. So 69 in a way is not irrelevant, but everyone jumps on that because it's a referendum and they go, yes, I can deal with this. Whereas if you go back to the New York Agreement which uh, generated that that's the devil's document that one it's very complex because it looks good it mentions self determination 17 times but if you go into the details of it you can you, with a lawyer's eye you you see how slippery it is and then in the hands of indonesia cuz the new york agreement took West Papua for six months as a UN trust and then passed the administration to Indonesia in 1963 and so that same document in the hands of Indonesia got slipperier and slipperier until you get to 1969 yeah. but don't forget in the middle of that period you've got the big massacre in Indonesia of uh, well the guy who managed it for Sahato, his name is Salo Eddy who's the father-in-law of SBY, SBY's father-in-law, Saro Eddy, he orchestrated that. And according to him, three million were killed, mostly face-to-face killings. So that happens like two years before this act of free choice. Now, although this massacre was kind of kept quiet, it was reported, you know, in little columns in the New York Times, it was nothing like what it, should have been, it was deliberately kept quiet because of America's involvement in it, on the ground, you know, with all those churches running around back and forth between Indonesia and West Papua and all that sort of stuff, it was well known. So that only added to the tension of the Act of Free Choice in 68, 69. So unless you get the two countries' histories kind of working side by side, you can miss the tremendous pressure beyond what was Sabo Eddy was actually putting on West Papuans because they... They chose a thousand and secluded them for six weeks, re-education, all that sort of stuff. So that's pressure enough. But to know that, okay, this guy isn't just saying things. When he says, "I'll cut your tongues out," he was the guy who did it two years ago in Java and Sumatra and Bali with uh, with his own people.
2: Before we actually go on to the motion for the if going before the committee, what is that intermediate? intervening period meant for the people of West Papua from 1969 to 2019. What has life been for the people of West Papua?
4: Just doing the broad sweep, I suppose anything under a racist oppressor is pretty tough. On top of that, there are genocide reports. Now, it's very hard to reach the bar writing a genocide report, but the one that has is the Asia Centre for Human Rights, And they're based in Hong Kong. And they actually sent people to the highlands for three years collecting information. And that is an incredible, like, all the highland villages, all the names of people killed, the time, the perpetrator, and all that sort of stuff. So that's a very solid, and that happened in 77, 78. And there's a great story associated with that, because in the meantime, a Papuan had gone through the Air Force and got up to the level of flying F-111s. And his first job after graduating was to drop a bomb on Wamana during this 77, 78 period. And what do you do? As a young graduate, imagine, you're from this forgotten little part of the empire. You're mm. black. You, you know, you've, you've got past this kind of incredible barriers to get these wings. And then you're told to drop it on Wamana. So what he did... He flipped it right, flipped his plane right at the last minute, and dropped it in the Arafura Sea, and was immediately stripped. But got his desk job back when Jacob was a student, because Jacob went to the trial. Got a desk job back, but he lost that uh, thing. So that's a kind of a, that's, well, a small story, perhaps uh, in the bigger uh, story of genocide. Indonesia always tries to, uh, let's concentrate on the last 15 years because there's plenty known about Suharto. I mean, he was an oppressor all over the place. Although I will say one good thing about Suharto, if you don't mind. He kept away. There was no development. It was fantastic in the light of what's happened since, which is massive development, you know. Um, if you get a chance with Google, is it Google where you can fly over things now? Mm. Oh, look at the governor's palace in Manakwari. It's like something out of China. It's huge. It's huge. And the Islamic temples, they're not just little ones, you know, when people are out evangelizing and that sort of stuff, a little bit humble. These are massive gold-trimmed, something straight out of Saudi Arabia. Magnificent edifices, you know. Great Muslim supermarkets everywhere. And that
2: brings in the issue of transmigration.
4: Yes, totally. There are many more non-Papuans than Papuans now in Papua. Yep. And who knows what the breakup will be like, how many will leave. In the past, whenever there's been a bit of an upset, a little riot or a little shooting here or there, the first thing you see are the, the white trucks lined up on the boats to, to leave and they're all the Trans McGrassies. But Trans McGrassies are not a homogenous group. You have got um, free settlers, they're the boogies, which go everywhere and just kind of take over the markets, they're really fast, you know, little profiteer people, they will leave, no doubt. The transmigrations that came in the organised government things will probably stay, and they are very supportive of West Papua because they've got nowhere else to go. You know, they were given these plots of land. The Papuans were given they were given a little plot of land, and the land in West Papua is very infertile—not infertile, not infertile uh, low fertility. You know, because it's tropical. So they will stay, and they are very strong supporters of uh, the independence movement. And then there's another lot. Well, all the military will leave and all the... The hard part for the Papuans, I think, are the Papuan teachers and Papuan nurses because they're working for the state at the moment, you know. So that's the difficulty there.
2: You are listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with activists for A Free West Papua, Louise Byrne and Nadine and the issue is a resolution prepared by the United Liberation Movement for West Papua to list West Papua with the UN Decolonisation Committee. Nadine, can I bring you into this? How did you get involved?
10: Um, Well, I was living in Vanuatu last year um, and... I was working with youth over over there, and I saw how much they all knew about what was going on in West Papua. Obviously, Vanuatu has been huge in supporting West Papua over the recent years. And I kind of thought, wow, you know, it's amazing. All of these kids are so radical in their support, and, you know, there's free West Papua sort of signs and tagging and stuff all over the, the student areas in Port Villa. And I was like... I don't know many other young people back in New Zealand where I'm from that know much about this issue so I thought right when I get back I'm going to find a way to be more involved and instead of moving back to New Zealand I ended up moving to Melbourne went to the protest outside the Indonesian consulate and I guess kind of got (laughs) sucked in from there (laughs) (laughs) But can
2: you explain a little bit more the connections between Vanuatu and West Papua at the
10: government level as well? Yeah, so Vanuatu is, they're actually the nation that are bringing the motion to put West Papua on the decolonisation list to the United Nations. So they've been pretty fundamental in building support through the rest of the Pacific as well. And there's also that motto by Father
4: Lini. Yeah. 1985 when mm-hmm. they became independent, mm-hmm. Vanuatu will never be free until the rest of Melanesia, Melanesia. is free. That mm-hmm. was a direct reference to West Papua mm-hmm. and Kanaki, yeah. yeah. And
2: that brings in that issue of Melanesia, doesn't it? They're not Indonesians, they are Melanesian. Absolutely. Mm, yeah,
4: they are. And uh, I don't think Australians are sort of quite across the importance of, say, the Melanesian spearhead group. It's mm. uh, Well, certainly the politicians aren't and the, the bureaucrats. But it was... Despite the fighting and how long it took and lack of voting and all this sort of stuff, it was the Melanesian Spearhead Group which was the first to recognise the West Papuan independence movement. So the Papuans say that when they were recognised by the MSG leaders, we moved out of the darkness into the light. So it really took that little group, you know, probably the smallest intergovernmental group in the world, it split the group and it's been splitting it ever since. Indonesian money has been massive, but they did it. And it's having sort of ramifications. The old independence movement, if I can just go back, so that's the OPM and and all that went around the OPM. They used to sort of think Holland and New York, right? And it was when the OPM split in the 70s, some fight between leaders, there was a little bit of a vacuum and no one knew what to do. And it was when this guy, you know, these people, one in one, you know, they just emerge when you need them, the leaders, the right types. So his name was Thomas Wangai, and he said, okay, the big part that's missing in our independence movement is culture. We've just sort of done the top layer, looking to Holland and looking to New York. Why aren't we bringing in our culture? So that was a very difficult process for the Papuans, because in the meantime, they'd all been taught to hate their culture through the racism so that was actually a very difficult period but it's been overcome now it was the Melanesian kin that brought them out of the darkness into the light
2: (laughs) and the people that have been forced out of the country and are are living in Australia living in New Zealand I suppose living in America and, and
4: Holland how important are they for the struggle crucial but can I say Unless the relationship is kind of tight with the homeland, with the homeland independence people, I mean, it can get a bit distorted. So sometimes in Holland, they're a bit, they get a bit confused, <laughs> and that's under the pressure, I guess, from the Dutch, but also that whole life in the diaspora, where you're just over swamped with kind of multiculturalism, and you're just one little kind of. Nothing really in a, in a sea of cultures and so you can easily get your messages a bit mixed up and sometimes they do that far away. Even here you can get your messages mixed up but we are a bit lucky in that we've got the only Federal Republic of West Papua office in the world in Melbourne. So we can sort of stay on track, you know, and despite all the little Things that can go wrong in a struggle, we can manage to stay on track because of that office and Jacob Rumbiak's role in it, you know. So we're lucky. New Zealand's not so lucky, but they haven't got many people either. As maybe students go down there, you know, they're not kind of well-versed and they certainly haven't got a fertile garden to blossom in down there, yeah.
2: And what's the essence of the struggle in West Papua at the moment and how much information... Can you get out of there about the, about really
4: the situation there for the people? It's not hard to get information now. Everyone's got mobile phones. So um, we get pictures and we get lots of data. This, for instance, the most recent data was after the Indonesian parliament declared war on West Papua in December 18. So then the Indonesian air force dropped bombs of white phosphorus on villages. So we even got pictures of a man, burning, and it was the Australian military that identified from the burns in the photo off the telephone <laughs> um, what it was. And know? that's what phosphorus does to you, isn't it? It eats through your body. Burns. Mm. It doesn't seem, well, according to him, it doesn't stop burning. No, it just it beats keeps through. burning. Yeah. Mm. And that guy with the big gash in his leg, that photo, the Indonesian Air Force refused to pick him up in helicopter and take him to hospital. So he just died, like in agony. I don't know what sort of agony. Yeah, mm. unbearable. So it's not difficult. There's two kind of things, you know. The intelligence and the army are still, as you would see with the Indonesian elections, you know, they're kind of stuck in their their old... Th- guardian of the nation so territorial integrity and all that sort of stuff so West Papua can never leave the top intelligence people know the West Papua has to leave will leave and in fact there was arguments even in, in the, amongst the political class when Indonesia during the debate about whether they would declare war on the West Papuans in December there were a couple of generals in the intelligence section who said don't do this those bastards are sitting down there waiting with their fucking phones. We'll end up in the criminal court and all our dirty linen will be aired. It was on TV, you know. Uh, Jacob watches it till four or five o'clock in the morning. That's what they said, you know. So there's a something coming through at the top level. So then it's got to get dripped down into the political class, the reactionary class, and then the people, you know. What
2: well, couldn't you tell us about this... Push to get onto the register for decolonisation How does it work?
10: In order for the motion to be passed The motion needs the support of over half of the member states In the United Nations So, yeah, I guess there's support coming through Obviously from a lot of the other Pacific Island nations There's support coming from the APEC Group and I guess uh, what we're trying to do at the moment is get some word from Australia that when the time comes when that motion gets raised at the general Assembly for them to support the and motion. when is that uh, that's September this year September yeah 2019 have you
2: had any correspondence with them so far to gauge what
10: they're likely to do We haven't reached out a heap as part of the campaign as of yet what we're trying to do at the moment is get the word out that this is happening to the Australian public. Um, I don't think it's an issue that gets talked about enough, you know, given Australia's proximity to West Papua. And yeah, let everyone know, I guess, that this is a huge opportunity for Australia to, you know, not continue being complacent in what's been going on over there. Um, So yeah, we're we're trying to build some support um, to take To the government to say, look, we, your population wants you to support. West Papua, our closest neighbours, when this motion gets raised at the General Assembly. And is that happening in New Zealand as well? I'm not entirely sure what's happening over in New Zealand. I think there's a bit of buzz. Um, I don't know that there's a campaign exactly like what we're doing in terms of lobbying this particular motion. Not that I've heard about. I have been trying to put some feelers out there, so if anyone knows, <laughs> feel free to get in touch because I'd love to connect with whoever's yeah, working on that over in New Zealand. We're just sort of doing this tiny little part of mm-hmm. it's just
4: Australia, and uh, you could probably, if there wasn't for the grassroots component, you probably wouldn't bother at all, mm-hmm. wasting your energy. You know, Australia's going to say <laughs> no, but uh, because of the grassroots component of the campaign, it's worth it. But uh, it's the United, it's the Papuan leadership, independence mm-hmm. leadership, ULMWP. Uh, they've been working on this for three or four years, right around the world, and a great example of. How effective they 've become is that we 've been working in Uganda of all places, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that 's sort of central one of five or six states around lake victoria and I think for most of us, Uganda you know you sort of think, "Oh God, Uganda, why would you go there sort of thing <laughs> except they 're on the front line of the fight with with uh, Muslim terrorism, and they 've had their own terrible history as an independence nation, and somehow they 've survived and are and, uh, vibrant. So we've had Jacob Rumbiak and others have been talking there a lot. Um, there's legislation passed in the parliament. And the other day in the African-Caribbean Pacific meeting in, it wasn't Brussels but one of those countries, where they were debating the draft, whether they would support this motion and, and the draft that would do it. So that's uh, 79 member states. PNG, in all its glory, followed by East Timor, cloaking itself in more glory, said they weren't, gonna, they were going to vote against it. And who got up and tore strips off them? The Foreign Affairs Minister of Uganda, <laughs> saying, you're just a failed state, you know, what right have you got to da 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 da-da-lum, and you're just over the border, you're an idiot, da-da-lum, and look, there was this horrible, horrible fight in the middle of the ACP meeting. With Uganda tearing strips off PNG and stupid East Timor. <laughs> so.
2: I suppose you can understand why PNG are, have that stand because they've been threatened by Indonesia forever, I'd understand.
4: But why East Timor? Oh, God knows. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't understand PNG either. Well, I, at the deep level I can understand. But um, they're the ones that can talk. They're like us. So they're just the same as us. Yeah, so they're kind of the least interesting nations to run a campaign in. (laughs) But we're having fun (laughs) with the grassroots anyway.
2: (laughs) If it doesn't go to the, the meeting in September, when's the next one? No, we go next year. So it's every year? We don't think about failing. How are you going about your campaign with your grassroots campaign? What are you doing?
10: So at this point, we are trying to collect signatures for a petition that we are hoping to have delivered to the Senate in August have a petition online, so if anyone out there is listening, wants to go and sign it you can just go to www.decolonisewestpapua.com that will link you through to a change.org petition, you can spell decolonise with a Z or an S, it will get you there either way yeah, so that's what we're doing at the moment, collecting those signatures we also have a physical petition so again, if anyone wants to run around with a physical petition, you can send uh, me an email at um, frwpwoman We can send one of those out to you More than happy to do that Yeah, so I guess that's been the first step It's a bit tricky with the election happening right now We also have a letter that we're asking people to send out to their local MPs More than welcome to do that before and after the election Just to see what they can do in order to push this issue through I guess to get the conversation happening That people in their electorate do really care About this decision uh, that's going to be made in September those are the things that, yeah, we're doing as a starting point.
4: Are there friends of West Papua in the Parliament?
10: Yep. Many? Not
4: enough, mm-hmm. but probably ten. And some of the names might surprise you. And now you're going to ask me who they are. The one that really surprised me is from Cairns. I mean, he came out to the Freedom Flotilla uh, when it went to Cairns, the one going to West Papua, and stood beside Jacob and gave this magnificent interview to SBS and said, one day we will get some common sense and Melanesians will have the identity that they want, Melanesians in West Papua. This guy's been in Parliament for years, years and years and was surprisingly good on the gay business as well. A lot of those Bush people and isolated people are good on these hard issues. Uh, he actually started the you know, Rights for Gays or... The Vote, yes. The vote. It wasn't the marriage business, it was before that, you know. Mm. He was one that pushed it right from the beginning. Yes, there, I mean, obviously the Greens have got policy. But even amongst Liberals, there's people who can remember war, remember fuzzy wuzzy stuff. They get muddled up a bit about between the two sides of the island. Not enough to get a majority yet. But once Nadine starts cracking the whip and <laughs> sharpening her knives, that will be totally different. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And we also have to acknowledge the the number of West Papuans who now live in Australia, particularly here in Melbourne, and who have a program here on 3CR. And and a number of those are refugees who came over, what year was it? On a boat in 2006. Yeah. Yeah. They were lucky, weren't
4: they, to get over that time? Yes. Mm. In retrospect, yes, yes. But it was always a bit um, preordained, that thing, you know. I don't know whether you'll appreciate this, but... um, Soon after, well, was a great story about the landing, which we've probably done before, but Amanda Vanstone was the Minister for Immigration, and she told a mole, we've got a few moles around the place at work, both for the Indonesians and the, you know, the old sort of intelligence mole. She told a mole, a Papuan mole, that she would look after those people. She didn't know she was a mole. And so we'd got to us. and so she actually implemented the Palmer Report reforms on those that group. Based on the fact that there was a kind of a good supporting group in Melbourne, so and we were working with the Foundation for Survivors of Torture and da So they were very lucky in retrospect. We had no idea of all that at the time, but in retrospect. And and Amanda Vanstone lost her job on that issue. Yeah, but as she said, I don't mind going to Tuscany anyway.
2: Can I ask you, Nadine, to just give us some more of those web pages or? Information for people to do something about this
10: Yeah absolutely So again the p- petition is at www.decolonisewestpapua.com If you need to get in touch with me If you'd like a physical petition If you'd like to help out with the campaign Because we desperately need some more hands on deck Around the country um, You can reach me at FRWP So that stands for Federal Republic of West Papua FRWP Women's Office At gmail.com And
4: one of the best things about getting involved is we are copying the Papuans. That's why we've got Mm. 1.8, the number of 1.8 million. They are a bit chuffed. That's, you know, down in big (laughs) sort of Australia, uh, we are copying them because they got 1.8 million. And so, um, what we are doing is, uh, now that we're, now that they are chuffed, we're going to go and exploit it. So we're putting them into boxes like they did from Melbourne up to Canberra on the train, getting special little trolleys designed, okay, <laughs> to pull the boxes, like the Beatles crossing Abbey Road. The best what? Campaigners? Yeah. Ten of the best are being chosen for that job. They will go down in history, right, mm-hmm. with that one photo.
2: And that's Louise Byrne, and just talking there with Nadine Rutter about the plan to take it to the decolonisation committee meeting in September. Also, there's um, another appeal for West Papua.
8: On March 16, the Sentani region of Kijepura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with the of the mountains, also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papua people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food, and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https slash project flood relief really for west papua west papuan people need you its time to help and do not make them feel alone and
2: thats about it for me for today i will say goodbye and i will be back next tuesday at 4 bye for now